Well, this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It is the story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Now, how many of you grew up with that song, the Zacchaeus song? Okay, a lot of you. I'm not going to sing that song. I love you too much to torture you with that song this morning. Uh, But that song has been in my head all week long. And the story of Zacchaeus is often taught to children, but it has a huge message for us for believers and non-believers of every age. And this story is the story of salvation, of how Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But unfortunately, throughout the ages, many have tried to make this story about something else. I read an article this week in the Huff Post, and here's the title of the article. It was written by an Episcopal priest, and this is what it says, Zacchaeus, the rich man gets woke. And so the article is about how Zacchaeus allegedly, the story of Zacchaeus is about how he allegedly uh, got woke, and he gave his money to distribute his wealth, because this is a story of economic justice and the redistribution of wealth. And uh, I don't think that's the point of the story. If you want to know the point of the story, Jesus tells us what the point of the story is. In verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. What is this story about? It is about how the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. And this is such good news for the world because we are sinners. We are, apart from the grace of God, we are lost, we are blind, we are cut off from God, we are worthy of judgment, we are worthy of hell because of the way we have lived. Even in our best effort, we cannot live up to the standard of God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to forgive us. He came to give us a new life. He came to give us eternal Life, And so this is a marvelous story of the grace of God. And there are two people in the story I want to look at here this morning. First is Zacchaeus, outside of Jesus. Zacchaeus is the main character. And then I want to look at salvation, the salvation that Jesus brings. So we're going to look at Zacchaeus, and then we're going to look at the salvation that Jesus brings. In verse 2, it says, There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So verse 2 says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in Jericho. This is where the story takes place. And Jericho was a significant city for a variety of reasons. But one of those reasons was that Jericho was an oasis. It was an oasis. And the surrounding region was basically a desert. But Jericho had plenty of water, plenty of trees, plenty of shade. So people loved to stop in Jericho to get water, shade, food, everything that you could imagine as you're traveling. Another reason it was significant, it was because of the roads. Jericho had developed roads between Jer- Jerusalem and Jericho. So these roads were really, they were, they were relatively safe compared to a lot of other roads. Uh, there were a lot of people that traveled on them. And so over the course of time, they became more and more and more developed. And so naturally, Jericho was a prosperous city. Some say that Jericho was the most prosperous city in Israel. And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of Jericho, in Jericho. Jericho was one of the three tax centers in all of Israel, and it was the most prosperous tax center of all three. So he is incredibly significant. He's incredibly powerful, and he is super rich. He is on top. He's not just a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector of the most prosperous city in Israel. The second thing we know about Zacchaeus is that he was hated. Zacchaeus was hated. 
To be a tax collector meant you had to buy a tax franchise from the Romans. The Romans were the Gentile occupying army in Israel. And so in order to be a tax collector, you had to partner with the bad guys. You had to partner with the Romans in order to exploit the Jews to make yourself rich. And the way it would work is that the Romans would go to a, uh, the tax collector or the chief tax collector and they would say, uh, in the Des Moines area, in the Des Moines metropolitan area, we need $1 billion worth of ta taxes. So Zacchaeus would say, I got to get $1 billion worth of taxes from people who live in the Des Moines metropolitan area. And, and after you get $1 billion, everything else you collect is yours. So if you collected $1.1 billion, you could take $100 million and put it in your pocket. So you had every incentive you could imagine to get as much money as possible. And the Roman army was on your side. And so you were untouchable. To strike a tax collector was to strike a Roman soldier. To assault a tax collector was to assault a Roman soldier, which meant death, that you would be killed. So you were untouchable. You could walk through the streets knowing no one is going to touch you. No one's gonna lay a hand on you unless they want to die. And so because of this, tax, tax collectors, they were the ultimate traitors. They were Jewish people who partnered with the Romans to exploit the Jews. Socially, they were not allowed to attend the synagogues. They were not allowed to go to the temple. If a tax collector was able to sneak into the temple or a synagogue, if you were found out, immediately you would be booed out of the synagogue or the temple. They would physically take you and throw you out of the temple or the synagogue. If you were a practicing Jewish person, you could not eat with a tax collector. You couldn't go to their home and they couldn't go to your home. They were the scum of the earth. And so Zacchaeus is hated. He is hated by everyone. Third, we learn that Zacchaeus was very short. He was a short man. One commentator said that Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. That's the way he described him. Uh, the Bible says he, he was short, so I'm gonna say that he was short. But how short was Zacchaeus? How short was Zacchaeus? Well, today in America, the average man stands five feet, nine inches tall. But what about 2,000 years ago? 2,000 year, years ago, how tall was the average Jewish man? Well, there's some speculation here, but according to uh, some archaeologists, they believe that the, the average height of a Jewish man, based on the common height of the doors and the common length of clothing, was four feet, two inches tall. I'm just kidding, that's not true at all. Uh, that would be very, very short. <laughs> That'd be very short. Five feet, two inches tall. That's what it was, the average man, five feet two. One commentator said that in order for Zacchaeus to be described as being short, he had to be quite a bit shorter than the average man. So he said he's probably maybe four feet tall or shorter. So he's a very short man. So he's a tax collector, he's rich, he's powerful, and he's short. Number four, we learned that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. We learned that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Verse three, he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. So he wants to see Jesus. He's struggling to see Jesus. He's running ahead. He's climbing the tree so he can see who Jesus is. Verse five. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Danny DeVito, that's who's been in my head all week long. Danny DeVito with a turban on, <laughs> hiding up in that tree. <laughs> no, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. So Zacchaeus is like, all right, that sounds great. He comes down the tree and, and he welcomes Jesus joyfully. 
But the crowds were not pumped about this. And remember what's going on during this time period. They're approaching the Passover celebration. So Jericho would have already been swollen with people, flooded with people. And Jesus has been performing miracles all over that region of the world. He's preaching all over the place. His fame and popularity had never been higher. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed two blind men outside of Jericho. And so his popularity, his fame is huge. So it's, the city is already flooded with people for the Passover. And it's even more flooded because of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus finds Zacchaeus and he says, I'm coming to your house today. And it says, verse 7, that all who saw it, so this would have been a huge crowd. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. Everybody knew Zacchaeus. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody hated him. And they were stunned that Jesus went to his house. Jesus was a preacher of the word of God. He was a miracle worker. And his fame, remember, is huge. And people are starting to buy into who he is. He just raised Lazarus. They said, okay, this guy's powerful. He's the, he's the real deal. And so they are stunned that Jesus would break all the social codes of the day and go have a meal or go stay at Zacchaeus' house, which sets up the second scene, which is salvation. It is the salvation of Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus, this rich, short, hated, powerful man, is genuinely saved in this encounter. He is genuinely saved. We know that because Jesus says, today, today, salvation has come to this house. And if Jesus says salvation has come to this house, that means that salvation has come to this house. We can fool one another. We can think that someone's a Christian and they're not. But you can't fool Jesus. So when Jesus says salvation has come, it means that salvation, genuine salvation has come. And so we are to pay attention to the salvation of Jesus Christ. This is the point of the story, that Jesus saves sinners. And there are three truths about salvation in the passage that we cannot miss. First, religion is often the enemy of salvation. Religion is often the enemy of salvation. And this is so counterintuitive for many people because many people think that religion is the path to salvation. How do you become a Christian? How are you saved? How are you made right with God? You follow religion. You follow the pattern of religion and then God rewards you with salvation. But in reality, religion is often, not just every once in a while, it is often the enemy of your salvation, of the salvation of the world. Look at verse 7. It says, all who saw it, all who saw Jesus called Zacchaeus out of the tree and go to his house, all who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. The universal response of the Jews was a complaint about Jesus, a condemnation about Jesus. He has gone to stay with a sinful man. One historian said that Zacchaeus, the equivalent position of a chief tax collector, would be the head of a drug cartel. The head of a drug cartel. You don't hang out with the head of a drug cartel. You don't do that in our culture. Like, there's a stigma at attached to that person, and probably rightly so. And there was rightly a stigma attached to chief tax collectors. And so they said, we cannot believe it, that Jesus, this holy man, has gone to stay with a sinful man. And they're complaining, and they're condemning Jesus Christ. And if you could imagine calling a timeout at this point, if you could just, okay, timeout. You stop the scene, Jesus, or Zacchaeus has come out of the tree, 
and there's Jesus standing there. The crowds are complaining. If you could call a timeout and interview Jesus and said, Jesus, how would you respond to this complaint? What would Jesus say? What would he say at this point about that complaint, that condemnation against him? Well, Jesus would have said, exactly. You are exactly right. I am going to stay with a sinful man. In fact, this is why I have come into the world. He says in verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. You are exactly right. I am going to stay with Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is lost and needs to be found. Have you ever been lost before? Like really lost? I'm not talking about, talking about driving in a new city and you miss your exit. I'm not talking about that. Have you ever actually been lost and you didn't know where you were at? I read a story this week about a little boy named Christopher Ramirez. He's a three-year-old boy down in Texas. And one, one morning, he, just, he was outside playing and he, he wandered off. And they couldn't find him. They were looking for a few minutes and then panic began to grow. And then the panic begins to grow more and more and now two hours have gone by three hours have gone by they can't find him uh, now the parents are calling everyone they know in the neighborhood saying hey have you seen my boy have you seen my boy the police are involved and 24 hours go by they can't find him can you imagine that as a parent your three-year-old boy christopher ramirez can't find him so then the next day comes and they continue to search after two days they can't find him he, you know he's outside. You know he's, he's somewhere. You don't know if he's alive. Was he kidnapped? Where's he at? Three days go by. You can't find him. And you're still searching with all of your heart. The whole neighborhood is searching. All the friends and family and the police, they're searching. At the end of day three, you can't find him. Day four happens, comes along, and you're probably beginning to give up hope and all of your fears in your mind, you're, they're just racing through your mind. Where is he at? Can he even survive without food and water for four days? And at the end of four days, they found him. Could you imagine the type of celebration, the type of relief that parents would have felt for their kid? The type of relief for that little boy? And I was thinking to myself, what is Jesus like in his pursuit of lost people? Is he indifferent towards them? Like this week, I, I was eating some almonds and an almond fell on the ground and it bounced kind of funny. And I looked for about three seconds and I said, I don't know where it's at. You know, maybe my dog will get it. I don't know. Maybe a kid will eat it off the floor. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not sure. And I didn't even think about it. I was like, okay, whatever. It's a lost almond. almond. I, it's not a big deal. But that's not the way Jesus searches for us. He searches for us. He seeks after us the way that a dad seeks after his lost three-year-old boy or a mom seeks after her three-year-old son. This is the image. So Jesus is like, listen, Zacchaeus is a sinner in need of forgiveness and that is why I came. So he's unfazed by the complaint of the Pharisees. He's unfazed by the complaint of the Jews. He's like, what do you, why do you think I came? I came to seek and to save the lost. And in verse 7, there is a stunning implication that flows from that verse, from that condemnation of Jesus. And here's the implication that, G, that the Jews did not sense how lost they were. 
The Jews did not sense how sinful they were. But why? I mean, isn't it obvious they don't see how lost they are? If they knew how lost they were and Jesus was there, they would say, Jesus, find me, (laughs) help me, redeem me, forgive me. So why, why didn't the Jews see how lost they were? Well, here's where we see the danger of religion, and here's the danger. It's that religion often blinds us from seeing our lostness. Religion often blinds us from seeing our lostness. They were not blinded by their own sense of moral badness. That's not what's happening. They were blinded by their own moral goodness. Quote, goodness. Think about their situation. They have the right heritage. They are literally descendants of Abraham. They have the right book, the Torah. They loved the law of God. They poured over the scriptures. They had the right God, Yahweh, the covenant God of the nation of Israel. They have the right city. They're right by Jericho. They're traveling from wherever they're at to get to Jerusalem. They have the right traditions. They're on their way to celebrate the Passover as God had prescribed for century after century. They have the right man. They're excited to see Jesus Christ. They're following Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man. They recognized rightly how sinful Zacchaeus was. They looked at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, what you have done is morally repugnant, because it was. And yet, they could not sense their own lostness. They could not sense their own sinfulness. They were blinded by their own moral goodness. And the same is true today, that so many people do not love and worship Christ because they're spiritually blind. And they are not blinded by their own moral wretchedness. They are blinded by their own moral goodness, their moral effort. It is their effort to be good that blinds them from Christ. Luke chapter 5, verse 30. This is the account of Levi, the tax collector, who became one of Jesus' disciples, the salvation of Levi. Verse 30 says, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and and sinners? So this is the same complaint. Verse 31, Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people did not see their sickness. Therefore, they did not see their need for Christ, that Jesus was just another man. But when you are sick, have you ever been really sick before, like really sick? When you are sick and you know that you're sick, you become desperate for a doctor. You say, I don't, I'm going to stop whatever I'm doing and I'm going to the doctor or I'm going to the ER. I got to get there because when you're aware of your own sickness, you say, I got to get there. But like right now, I feel good. I feel healthy. I feel strong. And so if someone's like, hey, Dan, you should go to the doctor. I'm going to be like, well, why? I don't know. Why? I mean, I could go talk to a doctor. I don't know. But I'm not desperate for a doctor because I don't feel sick. And see, the Pharisees were sick. The scribes were sick. The Jews were sick. And apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. We are sick. We, are, we, have, we have experienced the poison of our own sin. And when you feel the weight of your sin, the guilt that sin produces, the power of sin in your life, you become desperate for Christ. 
That's why, even as Christians who have been redeemed by the grace of God, if you do not feel your need for a Savior, think about this for a moment. Do you feel, do you feel your need for a Savior? Do you feel your need for Christ? I'm not talking about literally like every second of every day, but throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout the month. Do you feel your need for Christ? If you do not, if you do not feel your need on a regular basis for Christ to save you, to redeem you, to strengthen you, it is because you are blind. You are blind. You do not see the reality of your life. You are inflated with your own sense of moral strength and moral effort. If we could see our spiritual condition before Christ, we would be desperate for Christ every day. We can't even breathe without him. We can't do one thing that will last for eternity without him. We are utterly dependent on him. And so to live in reality is to acknowledge and to sense our dependence on Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And if we're lost, still dead in our sins, we're cut off from God. And so what happens in the story is that Zacchaeus becomes keenly aware that he is a sinner. What is so fascinating is that Zacchaeus knew that he was a sinner. Jesus knew that he was a sinner. He describes him as being lost. The Jews knew that he was a sinner. And yet, Zacchaeus was the only one who walked away justified that day. There is one who walked away justified. And it is the repugnant social outcast, the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. And so, brothers and sisters, we must not let our own sense of moral superiority, our moral effort, blind us from our need for Christ. Secondly, Jesus saves people individually. What do we learn about salvation? We learn that Jesus saves people individually. The shocking reality of the story is what happens in verse 5. In verse 3, Zacchaeus is seeking Christ. It says in verse 3 that he was trying to see Jesus. In verse 4, he's running to see Jesus. Again, in verse 4, he's climbing to see Jesus. But then we get to verse 5. And I want you to just, just attempt to put, your, put yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes. You know you're a chief tax collector. You know, you know that you've sinned. You know you're a social outcast. And here comes Jesus, and you want to see him. You can't see him because of the crowd. So you're trying to see him. You're running to see him. You're climbing the tree to see him. And now you're perched up in that tree. And here comes Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now what's stunning about that? Jesus calls him by name. He calls him by name. If I was up in that tree and he says, Dan, you know what I would have done? I would have fallen out of the tree. I would have been, I would have broke my leg. I would like, I, I, what? What? You know me? You call, you're, you use my name, you know me, and it goes even further than that. It says, this is what Jesus says, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Let me translate that. Jericho is flooded, flooded with people, tens of thousands of people, a frantic environment, and out of all the tens of thousands of people Jesus could have met with in Jericho, he does not pick the religious elite. He does not pick the Pharisees. He does not pick the synagogue leaders. He does not pick the scribes. 
He enters Jericho that day to meet with the rich social outcast, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he says, it is ne- hurry, come down. I'm here in Jericho for you. It is necessary for me to stay at your house. He says, I came here for you. So Zacchaeus is running and climbing and trying to see Jesus. But here's the truth of the situation. The truth of the situation is that Jesus was actually seeking him. And here's a principle you need to understand that I hope will help you to worship Christ. Here's the principle. When someone seeks after Christ, they demonstrate that Christ has first sought after them. When someone seeks after Christ, they demonstrate that Christ has first sought after them. Do you see that in the passage? Zacchaeus trying to see him. He's running to see him. He's climbing to see him. And what he realizes up in that tree is that Christ has come for me. He's come, he came into Jericho for me. So underneath all of Zacchaeus' seeking of Christ, the deeper reality is that Christ was first seeking him. Hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. We aren't just part of the blob of humanity. God does not see just a blob of humanity. He sees you. And when God saves a man, when he saves a woman, he saves you individually. He saves you individually. And see, Jesus knew how sinful Zacchaeus was. He knew it. And the Jews had some idea of how sinful Zacchaeus was. And you remember what the Jews said to Zacchaeus? The Jews said, Zacchaeus, get away from us because we know how bad you are. And this is one of the deep fears that so many people have. I know I've had this throughout my life. Here's the, one of the deep fears. It's that if people really knew me, if, they, if I was actually honest with people, they would reject me. Have you ever thought that before? If I was actually honest about what I think, what I do, what's happening in my heart, if they actually knew me, they would reject me. And then at the same time, we have another fear on the opposite side of that. And that fear is being lonely. We don't like to be lonely. And so to be known and rejected is terrifying. But to be unknown and accepted is shallow. It's shallow. We don't want to be superficially accepted. We want to be known and we want to be received. We want to be known and we want to be welcomed. And what I love about this story is that Jesus knows every sin that Zacchaeus had ever committed all the way down to the bottom of his soul. He knew every private conversation Zacchaeus ever had. He knew every greedy thought Zacchaeus had ever had. He knew every porn site that Zacchaeus ever went to. And Jesus doesn't say to Zacchaeus, get away from me. What he says is, Zacchaeus, this is why I came. I came for you. I came to save sinners. And Jesus, when he enters Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's going to go lay down his life for the sins of the world. He knows in Jerusalem, he is going to die for the sins of Zacchaeus. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who gladly laid down his life for Zacchaeus. He did not do it reluctantly, but Jesus says, that's, do you understand? That's why I came. I came to die in your place. 
I came to seek and to save the lost. And I remember when I was 14 uh, years old, I went to a conference and there was a lot that was happening in my heart even leading up to that conference, but I remember just feeling a thirst for Christ. And one, one truth that captured my heart during that time period of my life that I've never forgotten is the truth that Christ came for me. He came for me. I knew I needed to be forgiven. I knew I needed a savior. And Jesus didn't just come for a blob of humanity. He came to save me. And so we we say God loves the world, and that is true. Yes, amen. He loves the world. That, That God sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That is totally true. But what captures the heart is the truth that Christ came for me. He came for you. And when that truth, when that, when your soul tastes the reality of grace, your heart will begin to sing. Your heart will explode. You'll say, like the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. That he came to lay down his life for me. And that's why we sing. That's why Christianity is a singing religion. And singing and worship and making melody in your heart to God is one of the litmus tests of a healthy soul. Does your heart sing? Does your heart sing? Does your heart rejoice in the gospel of grace? Is the gospel still sweet to your soul? Can you pay attention to what God has done for you? Does it even matter to you? Does it move you? See, you can sing at church. You can sing in your car. You can sing at a concert. You can sing worship songs. And at the same time, not be healthy. But a heart that does not sing is a cold heart. It is a blind heart. It is an unhealthy heart. A heart that that does not sing has not been touched by the grace of God. You can't help it. When you sense the grace of God, you can't help but worship. That's why all of the Christian life is a life of worship, where our heart is singing and making melody to the Lord. God, thank you that you saved a wretch like me. And so God saves us individually. The third truth we learn about salvation is that salvation is heart transformation. What is salvation? It is heart transformation. This is what happens to Zacchaeus, that he is transformed inwardly. Becoming a Christian is not buying into a new moral code or being persuaded of a set of values. That's not what it is. Salvation is being transformed by Jesus Christ. What happens to Zacchaeus? He meets Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, and he is transformed Zacchaeus' dead heart comes alive. His hardened heart becomes soft. His blind heart sees. His dull heart feels. And in the story, we get a glimpse of this transformation. A transformed heart looks like a lot of things in the scriptures, but we see two, two descriptions of a transformed heart that I think are powerful. The first is that a transformed heart joyfully welcomes Jesus as Lord. What does a transformed heart look like? It joyfully welcomes Jesus not as your sidekick, not as your friend, but a transformed heart welcomes Jesus 
as Lord. He is Lord of my life. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now in verse 5, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I don't know if this is a good ministry strategy to follow or not. I was thinking about that this week. I'm like, are we supposed to do this? Like go up to a stranger and just be like, hey, I'm coming to your house today. I'll be there at six. (laughs) I like ribs, so get on that. (laughs) Like, is that what we're supposed to do? It's like, I don't know. I I assume if Jesus did it, it was good and right. It was what needed to happen. But he's inviting himself into Zacchaeus' life. And how does he respond, Zacchaeus? Verse 6. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Joyfully. He's like, yes. Yes. No lame excuses. Ooh, I have a meeting. I got to get to that meeting. I think I might have it. I'm sorry. That's not what happens. He says, come in. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus, so after having dinner with Jesus, but Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. What does he call him? Lord. Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. He joyfully welcomes Jesus as Lord. And at some point, Zacchaeus comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so because of that, in verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. He he has genuinely been converted. He's a genuine worshiper. Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, You know then that those who have faith, faith in Christ, these are Abraham's sons. Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, but he was lost and needed to be found, and he was found by the grace of God. And he became one of Abraham's true sons. The son who put their faith in the promise of God for everlasting life. And this is the glory of the gospel. This is the glory of the gospel. That the day before Zacchaeus was converted, he was a sinner. He was a social outcast. I mean, can, can you imagine what Zacchaeus might have done the day before this event? Or the week before? Or the month before? Or the year before? Could you imagine that? And then he meets Jesus, he puts his faith in Christ, and he's justified. The sinner, the outcast, becomes as righteous as God himself because of the grace of God. Righteousness is not something you earn, it is a gift that God gives to those who have faith alone in Christ. And so this sinner, this outcast, this repugnant man to society is justified, he is converted. This is the glory of the gospel. Regardless of what you have done, the things that you think, oh, I got, this is so embarrassing, it's so evil, it's so bad. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a son of Abraham. You are justified by faith. You are declared righteous by faith. So becoming a Christian is not buying into a set of values. It's not primarily a moral code. Becoming a Christian is meeting Jesus Christ. It is joyfully welcoming, welcoming Jesus as Lord of your life. Have you done that before? Have you ever gotten to a point where you said, oh my goodness gracious, Jesus is the Christ. He came for me. He came to lay down his life for me. He died on the cross for me. 
Have you ever joyfully given him your life? That's what a transformed heart does. Secondly, a transformed heart gives joyfully. A transformed heart gives joyfully. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Now, giving does not earn your salvation. Did you hear that? Giving money does not earn your salvation. You can't buy your salvation. But giving, generous giving, is evidence of a new heart. It is evidence of a new heart. I mean, what would move a person to give away half of their possessions to the poor? What would move a person to do that? What would move a person to make restitution by paying back people you've wronged four times the amount? I mean, can you even imagine that type of transformation? Here's Zacchaeus, the wee, the wee little man who runs Jericho, filthy rich by exploiting his own people. And here comes Zacchaeus. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine living there? And here comes little Zacchaeus, and he knocks on your door. What would you be thinking? You're thinking, oh my goodness. Your heart sinks in your chest, down into your stomach. You're thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? He opens the door and he says, hi, um, two years ago, I wrongly took $2,500 from you. Here's $10,000 in cash. And he just goes throughout the city, paying back everyone that he wronged. I mean, what would you think? You'd probably think, Zacchaeus, can you steal some more money from me? Because, I mean, if you're going to pay me back four times as much, take, take it all and just, just pay me back four times. I mean, you would think, what has happened to you? Now, what happened to him? He met Jesus Christ. And when you see Christ and you understand who he is and what he's done for you, your idols are gone. They're gone. They're replaced. They're replaced with the true worship of God. A greedy heart turns into a generous heart. But when money is your God, when money is your God, when money is your confidence, when it's your strength, when it's your, your security, you can't give. It's hard to give. And it's hard to give because when you give money, you're giving away your confidence. You're giving away your security. You're giving away your strength. But when Jesus is your God, when he's your Lord, when he's your security, when he's your confidence, giving increases your joy in Christ. It will simply increase your joy in Christ. And so money, how we handle our money, it's, gonna de- it's, it's going to demonstrate where our hearts are at. It's evidence of a new life. Now, just to close, I want to give you two points of practical application. Number one, they're just two questions. Here's a question. Are you seeking Christ Just think about that question. Are you really seeking Christ? Like, do you want to know him? Do you want to see him? Are you willing to run, to work, to try, to see him? Climb a tree? If you are, what you should do, the first thing you should do is just stop and praise God. I mean, if you've been a Christian for 20 years and your heart wants to know Christ more, just stop for a moment and just worship Christ. Thank you, God. Because sometimes our hearts are like, you know, I'm doing a lot here, Lord. You know, I'm doing, I'm, pu- I'm pulling more than 50% of the weight. I'm working really hard here. 
can you just do something for me? Can you help me? Have you ever felt that way? That's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. You, wouldn't, you would not seek God had, had not God first sought you. So if you have a desire to know Christ, to worship Christ, just stop and just thank you, God. A desire to pray, God, thank you. Everything we have is a gift we've received. And if you're not seeking Christ, if you're still blinded by your own moral goodness, beg God to open your eyes. Beg him. Open, I am blind. Help me to see. Open my eyes. And number two, are you seeking the lost? Are you seeking the lost? You know, Jesus Christ, he lived the righteous life that God requires of each one of us. He went to the cross, died on the cross. They laid him in the grave. He rose from the grave. He stayed with his disciples 40 days. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's going to return to judge the world in righteousness. He will do that. And in the meantime, his body is on earth, the church. He's the head, we're the body. And the same Jesus Christ that sought Zacchaeus is still seeking lost men today, men and women today. And he's going to do it largely through his body. He'll do it through his spirit. He'll do it however he wants. But he's going to seek after sinners through his body. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I would urge you, I would urge you, do not walk around ignorant of Christ who is seeking the lost. I would urge you to pray. Pray for one person. Seek after one lost person. A neighbor, friend, coworker. Seek after them that they might know Christ. Like, as a church, if we do not seek after the lost over the course of time, we will become a holy huddle off mission. And so we need more laborers for the harvest. And part of laboring is saying, God, I want to be a vessel that you use to seek after sinners. And so the place to start, start praying. Just have one person. You can do, you can, do you have one friend? Prove it. <laughs> start praying for him. Start reaching out for him or re- reaching out to him. Prove it. Just say, God, I want one, one person, maybe a parent on your kid's baseball team, football team, whatever, a neighbor, whatever. Just start praying and see what God does. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the gospel. We, we rejoice in what you've done for us. And I just, I pray as a church, we would join you in seeking the lost. Help us not to live for ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.